HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2024 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Don't miss over 70 educational sessions on farming and food systems, plus an expansive trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to a special edition of The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network and the National Young Farmers Coalition. I'm your host, Lee Ullman, with my co-host, Alita Kelly. We work with a coalition of tens of thousands of farmers and advocates across the country calling for land justice, climate action, and a more equitable future for agriculture. On this special series, we're digging into the Farm Bill, an incredibly powerful, multi-billion dollar package of legislation. It influences what we eat, and so much more. Over the course of the series, we'll be talking to farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. We'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another Farm Bill gets made. We hope these stories from the front lines of our food system inspire you. Join us to shift power and change policy to support the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. So why should our next generation of farmers and just about everyone who eats care about the farm bill? Every five years, this massive package of legislation directs billions of dollars to food and agriculture programs. It includes things like farm credits, research, conservation, and food access. But we know that lots of these investments aren't really meeting the needs of many young farmers or the urgency of the climate crisis. The Farm Bill has faced many challenges over the months we've been recording our interviews for the series. We lost and gained a new Speaker of the House and narrowly averted a government shutdown. And Congress approved an extension that will carry the previous bill into late this year. So the 2023 Farm Bill is now officially the 2024 Farm Bill. Should we be concerned about this delay? How does this impact farmers, and why does this matter? I'm your host, Lee Ullman, and I'll be joined in these interviews by my co-host, Alita Kelly. I'm the Land Organizing Manager with the National Young Farmers Coalition. 
I support a fellowship of nearly 100 young and BIPOC farmers from across the country working to advocate for equitable land access. You can find out more about our work by visiting us at www.youngfarmers.org. We're bringing you this special edition of The Farm Report to share what young farmers want and need from the Farm Bill. In this first episode, we talked to some Farm Bill experts and farmers about how this giant piece of legislation can influence the future of farming in our country. So let's jump right into my conversation with Celise Christie, an organizer with the Heal Food Alliance. She gives a really great overview of the Farm Bill, its history, and some of the changes we're advocating for in this Farm Bill cycle. Hey, Celise, thanks for being here with us. Can you um, just tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about yourself, uh, your organization that you're working with, and yeah, just a little bit about you. Yes. Hi. Thank you all so much for having me here. Yes, my name is Celise, and I currently serve as an organizer for Heal Food Alliance. I am originally from Dallas, Texas, and have worked in food and farming systems for about a little over 10 years now. Um, I kind of ventured into the food and farming space as a student who wanted to become a veterinarian and then learned about all of the intricacies of food and farming and our agricultural systems and realized I really wanted to support people and support communities. And so the journey of me being able to do and organize and build power collectively with other, you know, Black, Indigenous folks of color and the food and farming systems really led me to HEAL. And HEAL is a multi-sector, multi-racial coalition that works together across all four sectors of our acronyms, health, environment, labor, and agriculture, and really bringing, you know, Black, Indigenous folks of color to the forefront when we talk about issues of labor, health, environment, and agriculture, and how we build a collective voice together to advocate for the changes that we want to see, not only in our communities, but in greater societies. So, You know, we're going to get into the Farm Bill. And can we talk a little bit about how much the Farm Bill costs and where does most of the money go? Yes. So this current Farm Bill was appropriated for a total of $428 billion. And so if we that's a lot of money. But when we break that down uh, and we look at overall like federal expenditures of the federal government, the farm bill funding, that $428 billion, is actually 1%. So it's a very, very small pot of funding in comparison to all the other things that the federal government funds. Um, but when we break that down and look at farm bill funds, majority of that goes to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP, also known as like food stamps. And that goes to not only administering the program, the funds that get administered to people, uh, but then the, all the behind the scenes, like background administration, logistics, support for the overall program. That's 76%. The other portions go to crop insurance. So that helps cover crop losses for any commodity or specialty crops. And then another portion goes straight to commodity production. Another portion goes to conservation. And then another small percent goes to other miscellaneous items that the U.S. Department of Agriculture likes to appropriate for. So that includes like horticulture, forestry, rural development, credit, farm research, etc. So when we look at how it's being spent, majority, again, of that funding goes to SNAP or food stamps. And then all of the other funds 
get kind of appropriated later on in the process. So once the farm bill passes, then the discussion comes to how much money does gets allocated to all these different uh, programs and efforts. The farm bill is essentially, you know, funded by the federal government, but you know, who funds the federal government? Us as taxpayers. And so for HEAL, you know, this farm bill is really our bill. And when we think about it from a place of power and agency, how do we enable and and give people agency to not only learn about the farm bill, but know how it's broken down to then be able to advocate for the things that, you know, we want and how we want to appropriate those funds. Um, And so one of the things or many of the things that the farm bill doesn't actually include um, that we are advocating for on behalf of HEAL and our coalition is really farm and food worker rights and protection that isn't included in the farm bill. You know, the farm bill was initially created, you know, back in the 1930s, not incorporating or thinking about black and indigenous people of color cultivating the land. And so many of the pieces of legislation have been targeted and and have been uh, racially discriminatory, particularly when we look at like lending, access to land, all of these different issues that are pretty prevalent for not only BIPOC producers, but also like young and beginning farmers, especially. One of the things that, you know, we are also really advocating to is climate. Uh, And I feel like that's always been like kind of not hot buzz item, but kind of a little bit. It's been buzzing around and climate change, you know, wasn't really acknowledged by a lot of people in the food and farming space, particularly like in USDA or at the federal level until these past couple of years. And knowing like, you know, one of the other priorities at Kyo is, you know, how we're really advocating for this farm bill to be a climate justice bill, which is really connected to, you know, land access, because many of the methods and practices that young beginning farmers and BIPOC producers are implementing on the land, all the sustainable, regenerative, you know, agroecological practices, the indigenous practices of caring and stewarding for the land, you know, aren't new. And so how do we include and make sure like legislatively there's funding in the farm bill that promote these practices and, and help support these practices as opposed to something that, you know, oh, it's done on the small level, but like, actually this is small level, but like really big level and everybody should be implementing these practices, you know, organic, ecological and regenerative agriculture and really protect our ecosystems and really center our producers and our farmers and the knowledge that they hold around stewarding the land in a more agroecological way um, to really address climate change. And so, and I can go on and on and on, but mainly those are some like the big things that we're really advocating for is how we can really have climate justice to be at the forefront. And how do we talk about labor in the food and farming system and include the labor title in the farm bill? Uh, and then two, really thinking about how we're continuing to provide opportunities for, you know, all producers, specifically BIPOC producers and then beginning farmers. Can you drill down, for example, we've talked to some farmers about lack of access to capital and credit and how mm-hmm. that impacts their operations. Can you talk a little bit more about that? A lot of the access and capital that is available, you know, on behalf of the USDA, there's always like so many, you know, programs, like they're always advocating, like, go to their, your FSA office, go to your local FSA office and learn about, you know, the different beginning farmer rancher programs or the different farm loans that you can get. Um, and there's so many, you know, programs and so many opportunities, right? But 
it's really hard to not only learn about them, but then know how to be eligible for them and how to best prepare yourself to apply. So the opportunities are there, the funds exist, but when we look at young beginning farmers or BIPOC farmers, the systems and eligibility and the requirements that hold up these federal fundings and programs is really difficult to access, and not only in terms of the language, but also eligibility and requirements. Somebody, for example, who's a young beginning farmer and they're wanting to go to their local FSA office and get like a beginning farmer loan to maybe purchase materials for their farm or access funds to purchase land because uh, there are opportunities for that. You have to have documentation that you've been farming for three years. And then what if you're, you know, been an apprentice or have worked on a farm for three years, but you don't have documentation to prove that. So that's like one thing that I know that has been a barrier for a lot of people is like having the documentation. And then two, the USDA kind of defines a lot of eligibilities for folks that have been family farming. And it's like, what does family farming really mean? And when many people who are BIPOC farmers or young beginning farmers are farming cooperatively. And so some of these are pieces of language that we're, you know, really advocating for is really developing like flexible, low interest, non-predatory capital and credit opportunities. And then thinking about how we reform, you know, the Farm Service Agency, the FSA, by reforming the ineligibility for farmers to access uh, credit or capital. You know, maybe they have to also have like excessive collateral down to then be able to access a loan. And what if you don't have any collateral or you don't have, you know, land to put up or any machinery to put up because you're just starting to farm? You know, these are all different barriers that exist, you know, in the system of being able to access credit and capital. So again, there's many opportunities, but are those opportunities actually accessible for people? Do people know about them? Do people know the systems of how to integrate it? No. And we have to really know, be knowledgeable about what's out there and then, then to advocate for how to, how to change it. So what opportunities are accessible to young and beginning farmers? Before even applying to a USDA program, you need to first know about the program. In 2022, 71% of young farmers said they weren't familiar with federal programs. And for those who were aware of the opportunities, nearly two-thirds didn't have time to apply. Or they found the application too burdensome. After moving back home, Katie Randall, a young farmer in Mississippi, put a lot of time into researching the USDA programs they qualify for. But just because they applied doesn't mean they've gotten the support they needed. One of the programs we'll discuss is called EQIP, or the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. It's the USDA's main way to support conservation on farms. My name is KD. My last name is Randall. My pronouns are they, them. The name of my farm at the moment is Homegrown Farm. I'm from Mississippi by way of Holmes County and Atala County. I'm in about the third year of my land journey, currently a land steward. Um, helping my family on family land and also have the the blessing and privilege to be able to move towards um, starting my own land. Did you grow up uh, where you farm? I was raised here, actually, in Kosciuszko, Mississippi. I grew up here mostly, um, as my uncle calls me, was a, was a city girl. Um, so I just stayed mostly in town. But my, my land is a little, little bit outside of city limits. Can you tell us a little bit, you alluded to it a little bit, but I love to learn a little bit more about the history of your farm. Yeah, um, so the history of my farm, I feel like it's rooted in 
a time where I was deep in research of just like Southern Black rural history here in Mississippi. Um, and at the time, I was currently living in New Orleans. Um, I was a teacher and an educator serving with AmeriCorps and was in a space where there was a small green space and a small garden. And that's just really opened my eyes into like just the idea of having like ag-based learning in school. Um, and then during that time, right before things kind of slowed down for pandemic, I was able to take um, a Green Corps class in Louisiana, which is like a green inf- infrastructure-based learning core class. And I did that for a while and learned how to build French drains and rain gardens and really like um, understand the, the land of Louisiana and the wetlands and environmental health in that aspect. Um, and during that time, I also journeyed back to um, my hometown here in Kosciuszko to check in and care for my mother. And then at that time, I was like, Mom, I want to go visit, you know, where you grew up. And so we journeyed to the next county and had a chance to visit the land where she worked as a child. Um, and her siblings grew up on the farm and raised their animals. And then I also visited my father's side of the land, which is still in our family, where my older cousin now raises cattle and um, gardens with my oldest aunt who's 86, and my oldest cousin is 65. And so um, just had this opportunity to connect with my elders and really take this intentional trip on the land. And from that journey and from just hearing their stories, um, I felt very called to, to do this work. So I made the decision to move back to Mississippi and to start farming. How does all of this relate to you know, funding sources? Have you utilized any USDA programs related to the farm bill like SNAP or EQIP or conservation programs that might have helped you or are helping you? I've been able to apply for EQIP but not really understand the process of EQIP. It was actually just like a couple of weeks ago when I went to a small farms conference that I realized like the basis of EQIP or understanding like that's supposed to be like lead to more conservation practices and just understanding what does that mean and understanding having a plan behind it. Cause you can't, I feel like you can have like, you know, all the right things and not know how to bring them together. Um, and like, even outside of my research of EQIP and my research of FSA, sometimes the applications I struggle to understand or um, to have those conversations with, you know, agents in the office of what, what needs to be done to be um, better equipped for those opportunities. But in terms of right now, I haven't been able to to do that, I, I am in a window of time where it's it's now coming up again that I'm trying to position myself better because I've learned from the last time of like why I wasn't funded or um, why where I was at was not deemed, you know, accessible to, to be funded. I'm steady like educating myself through personal research and finding um, local cooperatives um, here in Mississippi that are doing their work and actually providing a lot of technical support to me in terms of like understanding that process to be better. And can you, are you able to talk a little bit more about some of the issues you've been having in applying for these funds? Are you able to expand on that a little bit? Sometimes going into those offices can be very intimidating personally. Like you don't know, you know, how to start the conversation or you don't know what's the best way to navigate it in terms of presenting like, I'm a new beginning farmer. And then even seeing things that you research online and it's plenty of um, graphs and infographs and, you know, checklists of things to do. But personally, it doesn't come together for me, like having a conservation plan. I don't know what what exactly to ask for. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like 
I feel like it can get frustrating, but I know it's a process of learning. And so I try to be patient in the process, but it can feel like you have to know certain things to say it a certain way to get what you need. When Katie walked into their local farm service agency office, it was intimidating. So many of the experiences they shared remind me of my conversation with my colleague, Vanessa Garcia Polanco. She spends a lot of time talking to young farmers about the customer service experience aspect of working with the federal government. She's been keeping a close eye on the negotiations as they've played out. And even with all the setbacks and delays, she's feeling optimistic. Hello, everyone. I'm Vanessa Garcia Polanco, on Government Relations Director, uh, National Young Farmers Coalition. And that means I lead a lot of strategic engagement uh, with members of Congress and the administration and USDA. Excellent. Okay. How does what happened in the Farm Bill impact what agriculture in the U.S. looks like on the ground? So we have to remember um, the Farm Bill is not just farms, it's food, agriculture, rural communities. So all these farm bill programs really set the tone of what kind of agriculture we're investing in, uh, especially things related to like commodities. Uh, and commodities just means um, an agricultural product uh, that is interchangeable for any, any other one. Things like safety nets, things like crop insurance, also other support systems that you need for to be a farmer, like credit access and market access. And things that are related to markets as the farmers may need to build infrastructure to sell their products, things like farmers markets, and many other things that impact our lives as farmers, like researching the capital extension system, the land grant system, and many other rural services and programs. From roads to hospitals to broadband and internet is funded to the farm bill. But especially for us as young farmers, um, we focus a lot on what we call a miscellaneous title. And that program especially focuses on beginning farmer ranch and training opportunities. And it's like the core program that funds beginning farmer ranchers and socially disadvantaged farmers. I always like to tell people, think about every way that you interact with food, fiber, and fuel. And every way that you interact with that is probably dictated by the farm bill. What are some of the big focus issues this year in terms of what might change and what programs may or may not be funded? Okay, so every farm bill, we, we get some wins. But I think this farm bill was really unique because it's the first farm bill after COVID where the federal government just did billions of dollars in investments and, and payments to farmers, to the food system, and also after the Inflation Reduction Act. That was the signature climate legislation that legislation had $20 billion extra dollars for conservation practices or climate smart practices that are usually authorized in the Farm Bill. So a lot of us see that a bit homework or duty that we have in the Farm Bill is to protect that conservation funding because we know that a lot of voices are going to say, you got $20 billion. you cannot get the same funding in the Farm Bill. We're like, no. We want to keep what we got, we want to keep what we have in the farm bill, and we want more because we know our farmers are just so interested in conservation, climate smart practices, and there's still not enough funding or enough staff to provide support for all those farmers uh, to apply for those funding. I was just seeing the stats yesterday, and we know that only between 21 and 25 percent of farmers can access conservation programs because there's not enough money in that program already. We know there is more people applying than that we have funds available for them to use these practices. 
I think it's something that we're a little fearful that may change is just some of the authority that the Department of Agriculture has to do a lot of we have called this racial equity transformation. We know there's some folks that don't believe that the department should be doing this uh, when we believe it should be doing what it's doing and more. So we know there's going to be probably going to try to make some changes to limit the authority and the scope of those activities. And that's something that we're really ready to defend and advocate against because we know that if we really want USDA to be the people's department, they need to have a racial equity understanding and and the cultural competency to serve farmers of color, young farmers of color, historical underserved farmers who have not traditionally been served by USDA. And how does the Farm Bill currently serve young and BIPOC farmers and how is it failing the next generation? I would definitely say there are farm bill programs that in statute uh, are meant to be supporting young and beginning and BIPOC farmers. Um, but again, it's the access and accountability piece. We still do not have enough resources in the cultural competency at USDA. A lot of these farmers are entitled to the services. They just don't get good customer service. They do not have access to these things because maybe they don't know where their office is or they have never heard back from USDA. Also, there's legislative uh, challenges like when a program was designed in, in, in the farm bill, it was not thought through how a young farmer who's going through different crops and selling at the farmer's market may use them. So that's something that there's only so far that customer service and good cultural competency can take you until you have to go back and rewrite the program so it works for young farmers and historical industrial farmers. Matt Hollenbeck, an apple farmer in rural New York, has a lot riding on the next farm bill. He's used existing programs to set up his orchard, including EQIP and CSP. That's the Conservation Stewardship Program, and it's another important program for farmers looking to address the climate crisis. My name is Matt Hollenbeck. I am the current steward holder of the debt of uh, Hollenbeck Cider Mill. It has been a community staple since 1933. Because of families are strange, uh, it's hard to say whether I'm the third or fourth generation, took over after 86 seasons of the cider mill. Uh, I was the first to actually start growing apples. Uh, So I am an orchardist, agroforester, and that's always a strange thing for me to say as I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome because it's all tree crops. So while I've planted them, I do lots of work. I've not actually produced any food yet. So everything is still still pre-bearing. This was the last pre-bearing year, so I'm hoping for my, my first crop. We are in central New York, Virgil, New York, I grew up 40 minutes from from where I live and farm. I made it to the Midwest for school, work, and a decade of life before I I came back. And life life takes you strange places. And I started working for my cousin at the the family cider mill, and he was 80, looking to retire, and had no no successor, no plan. And it is a place that I grew up loving and wasn't going to let go. So changed my life plans to make sure it kept going. 
Yeah, I can hear this emotion and, and how important that this is. And because there's a risk, right? There's a risk that this would just not be around. Um, and that's that's a risk that you're living under <laughs> still, it seems like, because it's not easy to, to kind of support um, the, your farming operation. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that. What are some of these challenges that you're facing and why has it been so difficult? It's a strange thing. We've been a processor for 80 years. Uh, grower is still quite new, but we essentially make all of our money in seven weeks the demand, it is sort of like only when Starbucks has pumpkin spice are people interested in coming to our business, <laughs> right? Um, it's a weird seasonality that uh, means that this time of year, I work 120 hours a week. So you're right in it right now. Yeah. And you're probably, it's very apparent the things that, you know, are propelling you forward and the things yeah. that maybe you wish you had to support you in this work. So want to get into some of that a little bit. Um, what has, what has been helping you as a farmer? What has been supporting you in this work? Everything I know, everything I do, I learned from extension, be it Cornell Cooperative Extension, Cornell Small Farms Program. I've done stuff with uh, University of Vermont Extension, PASA in Pennsylvania. There's lots of stuff uh, through NRCS, so my local soil and water conservation district. And I'm also working through the CSP and the EQIP program. There's a lot of overlap with my style of agriculture and and programs that are, are covered. So the very first thing I did before I even started really planting trees was put in deer fence, which when I did that in 2017, 2017 and 2018, I actually started growing my fence, a hedgerow project, like a self-renewing fence that provides both wildlife, pollinator, all sorts of, sort of other things. And that has been uh, massively helped by uh, CSP and ECOP programs, helping me like fund doing that and basically ensuring or, or helping me to make sure that myself, anybody continuing to steward into the future doesn't have to put up another deer fence. We just have to continue managing our hedgerow. And so you've talked about EQIP as helping you, one program that might help you with infrastructure, but you're also talking about this, this real risk of, of crop loss. And I'm wondering um, if you could talk about crop insurance and what that's like for you uh, as you know the size farm that you are. And we see the farm uh -huh. bill sort of talking about crop insurance, but maybe not supporting farms that are your size. Can yeah. you talk through that a little bit? So it's a, it's an interesting thing. It's you know, like, that's a, a thing I need to learn more about. The thing that I sort of know and why I've put it on a back burner is it's all based on past production, right? Like if I lose my first crop next year, tough, right? There's nothing, there's no help. There's no, nothing for me. If I lose my first two crops, it's a, it's a strange thing. Like I'm doing all of the parts of farming for years with the hope of future crops and like we're, we're coming up on it. But, you know, if there are these frosts that 
you know, wipe out all all the apples in the Finger Lakes. Uh, you know, people have been doing it for 20 or 30 years. They they have that established record of of their crop and can apply for crop insurance. But yeah, so that's a thing that I know enough to know that it's not helping me for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there are these issues that you know, um, farmers in, in our network, small and mid-sized farmers or young and beginning farmers and BIPOC farmers, they're, you know, the access to these funds and, and some of these um, resources just kind of don't really fit your specific needs or they can be hard to access. So um, I want to kind of start to link that to some of the advocacy work that you've been doing in the, the fellowship and, you know, just kind of ask why, what are some of the issues that you're feeling passionate about advocating for? Yeah, I mean, so I think a lot about it just from a like planning standpoint, right? Like what, uh, you know, again, I'm planting perennials. I'm trying to like think about this on a time scale that is not just like, longer than I'm buying seeds to plant for next year and then I can pick a different variety the year after. I'm trying to plan this where I'm setting systems, doing things that persist for generations, right? I am I am trying to to start and grow a system that will outlive me, right? And there needs to be a little certainty, a little idea of what both support, what policy, what we're doing, right? Like, I think a lot about the things, the things that I have said, the problems we have had, those are things that are like, come from earlier farm bill and USDA policy, right? Like, Earl Butts, get big or get out, plant commodities from fence row to fence row, right? Like, these are things that we decided we were going to prioritize. And again, it is not a moral failing for the farmers who did those things. They were told to do those things. We were incentivized to do those things, right? We can learn, right? We can say maybe, ah, maybe that policy wasn't actually good, right? We can learn from past mistakes you know, think of these as experiments, right? Like the farm bill is kind of an, you know, it's every five years, but like it's more of an annual than a perennial, right? We can like, oh, climate change, right? Like I need to grow different varieties here or like my soil isn't suited for for these things. Uh, that's great. You can learn from that and and plant a different variety. Try something Try something new that suit the conditions that you're experiencing. Um, and yeah, I think we have to think about the farm bill that way, right? Like the, the that policy worked, right? Farm consolidation, like growing corn in a place where the land wants trees, right? Policy results in outcomes for farms, right? So um, what is in the farm bill, what the USDA is like incentivizing and asking us to do is important, right? Like this is probably a dirty thing to say, but farming the USDA is a thing that 
gets talked about a lot, right? I think using policy and financial incentives to affect behavior, that's what government is. That's what government should be. And we're just trying to decide what those behaviors are, what those outcomes we want. And so what the farm bill, what the USDA policies are, are sort of uh, like directing agriculture in this country. And, you know, that's good, bad. I I don't know that, but that's the system we have. And so we have to like work within that. And so knowing what's in the farm bill kind of tells me what it is, is an option for me, right? What is too financially risky? What is their support for? And not just like financial, but like technical assistance. And again, I'm a first generation farmer with no background in this. And yeah, I've worked for various farms throughout my life. But that's that's the whole of my background. The technical si- assistance portion, I need somebody who's gonna who I can ask, right? And uh, there is, you know, like, other farmers are a great resource, but like, technical assistance is super helpful. We need people who are looking to do to try new kinds of agriculture in a changing climate and when you're 60 you're not going to stop being a like big conventional dairy farm right that's what you're going to do until you retire right we need sort of a a shift in in generation where we make the food system closer to home shorten the the distance from food production to food consumption. And the only way to do that is to tell Earl Earl Butts to get lost and have small farmers growing food in sort of like diverse, well-stewarded land, passing land from one generation of farmers to a new generation of farmers is critical to every issue that comes up in politics. Climate change, national security, all of, you know, all of the things that we talk about can be addressed through good ag policy. We'll be right back after a quick break. Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show, and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN2024. Access to land is foundational for all farmers. We're going to go back to my conversation with Celise from Heal. Yeah, land access and land tenure is, you know, something really 
prevalent and like pertinent to each of our hearts, especially as we look at, you know, who has agency and access to land. And so, you know, at HEAL, one of the things that, you know, we're really advocating for in alignment with many others is to improve land tenure and access for BIPOC producers. And so many of the folks that we're working with, you know, are, you know, Black Indigenous farmers who have, you know, not had access to land and looking to really think about how we can really advocate for the return of stolen land to Indigenous groups and tribes, to really think about reparations that were lost due to discriminatory lending practices, uh, how we really support, you know, BIPOC-led land cooperatives or land trusts and thinking about these kind of I don't want to say out of the box, but maybe beyond what we, the system that, the systems that we see right now, uh, when we look at cooperative land ownership and how some of the pieces of legislation and the way that funding is, is set up now doesn't really support cooperative systems. So how do we talk about that when we think about sustainability long-term for people owning land and how people already farm cooperatively in many ways like BIPOC and young farmers do now? And then think about transfer of land ownership. One of the huge things with a lot of BIPOC farmers, specifically in the Southeast, is like heirs property. So when we think about folks who've lost land because they haven't been able to put their property, you know, into a trust or succeed it down to another individual within their family, how can we protect that land to then be put into maybe a land trust or potentially owned cooperatively? And I think, you know, all of this is so important for our farming future, our collective farming future. And we're in this moment where we're all advocating for these things, but the farm bill is in such flux and we're not sure when funding is going to come through. So what happens if the farm bill is pushed out? How do you feel about the impact of what that might look like? Yeah, I feel like the more and more the farm bill is pushed out, that's the struggle of us continuing to advocate for all the new things that we're wanting to implement into the farm bill for the next five years gets delayed and pushed out, especially as, you know, the farm bill keeps getting extended. Folks keep going back and forth across Congress about how we're going to be appropriating or taking funds from one portion to then be able to fund another. And SNAP has been readily attacked and Republicans have been asking to take funds out of that to then appropriate for more conservation efforts or more climate efforts or even crop insurance. I think the most kind of crucial thing is to be able to advocate and, and put pressure on Congress to continue to solidify when they'll be able to pass a new farm bill, just because there's so many things that we've been and continue to advocate for and want funding for to trickle down uh, to some, many of these things that we're asking for. And so the extension just kind of prolongs the delay. And so how do we, yeah, be adamant and put the pressure on Congress to not extend and extend, but really make a diligent decision to enact a new farm bill? You know, you're so close to this work and you've dedicated so much of your time to advocating um, for these policies and and talking to to folks about the farm bill. So just kind of wondering, why does the farm bill matter to you? Hmm. For me, as a person who didn't grow up on a farm or even in a rural area, I think about my pathway into food and agriculture and farming and my passion to really support not only the people who work so hard, but then also me as an eater. You know, it's my responsibility to know 
not only what I'm eating, but then like how, how that all came to be and how I can be doing my best to be informed about the issues locally. It's like, wow, like this piece of legislation, all this money, like it's technically something that I, I support as a taxpayer. And so how do I not only, you know, take agency in that and then realize that, wow, what are the things that I want to see in the food and agricultural system? And what are the things that I want to advocate for on behalf of me as an eater, as a consumer, as a supporter of farmers, producers, farm workers, and think about, wow, I have, I have agency in that. I, my story matters. My story has power. Each of our stories have power. And so when we think about these things that we're advocating for, whether it's climate, whether it's access to food, whether it's land tenure or land access, uh, whether it's fair credit and farm lending, uh, whether it's, you know, holding corporations accountable, I have a story to tell as well as many others who are also listening. And so we have to take those stories to Congress. We have to talk to our local senators, our local House of Representatives, and really tell our collective stories together to really advocate for what we want in our food and farm bill because our stories haven't been captured and our stories haven't been put to the forefront. And now is the time. Salise highlighted that we have this opportunity with the farm bill to tell our stories as farmers. We have an opportunity as eaters to make our voices heard. And even though the path is not always straightforward, we are always moving towards progress with our advocacy work. We wanted to end this episode by circling back with Young Farmers Government Relations Director, Vanessa. I asked her about why the Farm Bill is so important to her. I think for me, because I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, I have studied agriculture, environmental history in South America and in the United States. For me, it's just fascinating. And I really want every American, every person that lives in the United States to understand how fascinating it is that we have the opportunity to do a farm bill every five years. Usually in Latin America and in many other countries, you do a driving reform every 30, 40 years. And that's it. You never go back and think about, again, how we can better support farmers. And every now and then a president comes and goes and does a, a special project with farmers. That's it. The, the infrastructure and the institutionality that the Farm Bill has created in the United States is just unprecedented. And the fact that every five years we have the opportunity to revise what is working is, is just beautiful. The Farm Report is hosted by Lee Ullman and Alita Kelly. We're produced by Lee Ullman, Evan Flom, and H. Conley. We're edited by Hannah Beal and H. Conley. Audio engineering is by Armin Spengen and H. Conley. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The National Young Farmers Coalition is shifting power and changing policy to more equitably resource our new generation of working farmers. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you stream your shows and share it with someone you think would like to join the Young Farmers Movement. You can follow us on Instagram at heritage underscore radio and at Young Farmers, or take action at youngfarmers.org slash advocate. Consider becoming a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition today for only a dollar a year at youngfarmers.org slash join. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Subscribe to The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network wherever you listen to podcasts.